0: This episode is brought to you by Avalanche and Paraswap. You'll hear more about them later in the show. Enjoy.
1: There are huge markets, like collectibles over $100 billion a year. Art is like, John would know more, but like $65 billion a year, maybe per year. Uh, Gaming, a couple hundred billion dollars a year. So these markets are absolutely massive. And NFTs are actually increasing the size, are going to increase the size because what they're doing is they're increasing accessibility, and just lowering frictions. This
2: is gonna touch so many different things. Like if this standard takes off, uh, you know, it's sort of impossible to imagine, like Andrew said, like the biggest market in the world. This is gonna be so many different things.
0: All right, everyone. Really interesting episode coming up. We got Santiago, per usual, as the co-host. We're also joined by Andrew Steinwald, the co-founder, or I, I guess just the founder, the uh, the CEO, founder uh, of Cephermion, a $100 million venture fund. Uh, I'd probably bucket it as one of the first, or if not the first, like real just uh, NFT metaverse fund. Uh, Pretty big names invested, Alan Howard, Chris Dixon, Mark Andreessen, Cameron Tyler, Winklevoss, uh, DCG, Animoca Brands. You might have heard a cu- of a couple of them. Uh, also, we've got uh, John Crane, co-founder of SuperRare, uh, just an all-around really great human, but also uh, Super Rare is a marketplace for buying and selling uh, NFTs, uh, digital art on the, uh, I think, mainly on the Ethereum blockchain right now, John, we can talk about that, I might be wrong. Um, I think it also functions as a social network for artists, collectors. It's got like uh, featured profiles and activity feed. So anyways, guys, Andrew, John, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah,
2: thanks for having me on. Excited for the conversation.
0: Of course. Uh, Andrew, I actually just wanna pick on you for a second. I wanna rewind the clock. Uh, You go on bankless. During the DeFi summer, this is like August or September of 2020. NFT volumes are like a million, two million bucks a month. You said, I know... Guys, I know DeFi is big. I know DeFi is big right now, but NFTs are going to be even larger. I remember listening to that episode like a year and a half ago and being like, "This guy's a complete lunatic." Uh, I obviously had known you for since since the last cycle, but I was like, "I don't know what this guy's seeing in these NFTs." Uh, Today, NFT volumes per month are like a billion and like one point five billion. Right? It's like a one thousand x increase since you went on Bankless and said this. What gave you that conviction uh, in NFTs way back when?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I originally, you know, way back when, got, got involved in Bitcoin in 2013. And I've just been interested in crypto since that period and trying different startups in, in blockchain and trying different things out, launched a crypto fund in 2017 and was realizing, OK, so it was, was kind of thinking that this is all headed somewhere. And originally I thought, OK, we're going to transform, you know, the US dollar, the currency, we're going to transform the financial system. That was kind of my worldview. But then when I went to NFT and NYC in February of 2019, I met with one, one individual. His name is Jin. Uh, that, like he, he goes by Jin. I don't even know his real name. And he, I sat down with him for like four and a half hours at this conference and we talked just about the metaverse and NFTs and blockchain how all of this is connected and, and how, you know, the metaverse is now emerging because NFTs are, are, are now, now a thing. And NFTs just enable digital ownership. And so, and you really need digital ownership for a metaverse to emerge. You can't have. A metaverse that's like centralized or controlled by one entity, like Facebook or or some, something like that. And so, when that clicked in my brain, I was like, "Oh my gosh! Like he's 100% correct. This is going to this is going to happen no matter what." And then when I went home from the conference and I, I was like googling like stats about okay, what what societal trends are happening, what technological trends are happening that's actually going to bring this metaverse to fruition? Because back then, like I, I didn't even really know what like metaverse was really. And I, I started diving deep and looking at screen time. Like screen time all around, all around the world is on the up and up. Started looking at gaming trends, like gaming is becoming normal. People are, you know, the creator economy. People are earning money from streaming, from these kind of digitally native activities, and I, I kind of realized, okay, wow, NFTs are the missing piece. And this market will be huge because it is so uh, approachable comparative to crypto or DeFi, like DeFi and crypto, they're, they're amazing. They're they're huge, they're so important, but really it speaks to people that are into interested in finance. And NFTs on the other hand, it's arts, which speaks to a huge amount of people. It's gaming, which speaks to a huge amount. It's it's collectibles, which speaks to a huge amount. And all these different markets, these sub-markets, they all touch upon like human, the, the, the human factor, which is like people are born to collect. People are born to signal status. People are born to feel a part of a community. And so all these things were, were, you know, you t- t- tie that, that, those factors into the societal trends. I was like, oh my gosh, without a doubt, this is going to be the world's biggest market. Because anyone, anywhere in the world with the internet can suddenly create NFTs, right? And I was just, just thinking, you know, c- connecting all the dots and realizing, okay, this is going to be huge. That's why we set up Sephermion or I set up Sephermion in September, 2019. And, uh, uh, yeah. So, you know, it was for, for the first two years, I was like, okay, people are, cause I was pitching, you know, to, to raise capital and people were not really digging it and I was thinking, okay, maybe I'm, maybe I'm dumb. Maybe this is not like kind of, kind of going to be a big thing, but, uh, luckily, you know, people kind of discovered NFTs in a big way this year
0: you were pitching capital for in 2019 maybe early 2020 john i you know i remember like super rare launching i think you guys uh, founded founded it in 2017 it launches in 2018 hate to break it to you but like crypto kitties had basically clogged the entire ethereum blockchain and nfts were entirely dead then so i'm assuming it wasn't like the biggest launch in 2018 and 2019 and you're kind of debating whether or not this was real or, or am I wrong? Like, did you just have the conviction similar to Andrew that this was going to be the biggest market in the world?
2: Uh, I don't know if I had, I had similar conviction. I wasn't sure about the timing exactly, but, um, yeah, when I, you know, had been in the crypto space for a little while, I was working with, uh, consensus, um, yeah. So on Ethereum projects saw what had happened with ERC 20 as like, you know, a super simple standard, right? It's like, I don't know, 60 lines of code or whatever. Um, And just thinking about the powerful impact that had. And so when I saw the work that was happening with the NFT standard, you know, shout out to the Dapper Labs team for putting that together. But like the, the gears just started turning. I was like, basically everything on the internet has a unique ID and we're building a standard for things that have unique IDs. So I think, you know, this is going to touch so many different things. Like if this standard takes off, uh, you know, it's sort of impossible to imagine, like Andrew said, like the biggest market in the world, this is going to be so many different things. Um, and so I was like, I have to work on NFTs. Like this is, you know, as far as like asymmetrics bet, asymmetric bets go, like worst case scenario, I learned some things, launched some projects, nobody uses them. Uh, best case scenario, it's the biggest market in the world. So, um, Yeah, we launched, it was uh, a lackluster launch to say the least, you know, there's a, the guy was sort of trying to raise money on and off for like two and a half years approximately. Um, But you could tell as soon as it did launch that there were like, it was, there were immediately people using it, right? There were like people, the people who got it, got it and understood what was happening. And so you know, many ups and downs wondering, like, what am I doing with my, with my life? My wife is like, are you ever going to get a real job? Like what's going on? You're just, (laughs) you know, trading JPEGs. Um, but yeah, it's, you could tell it was just like the, you know, the flywheel was starting to move, um, early
0: on. So, so that I actually, that's kind of the, The next place i want to go is andrew you're saying like you have this thesis that this will become the largest nfts will become the largest market in the entire world john you're mentioning you know every single thing on the internet should have unique digital scarcity but also right now what everyone sees in nfts is people just speculating on jpegs right so you've got people everyone speculating on jpegs these profile picture projects but then some of the smartest people in the world are just saying are saying right now that nfts will be the largest market in the world big big gap, right? Help me bridge that gap and like, help me, take me into your guys's future here. I think
1: that, so all forms of value, whether it be digital or physical goods, will be represented on chain as as an NFT. And that'll be, you know, that'll take 10, 20 years for for that to happen, but that will happen. And then also what John's talking about, these, these kind of separate markets, if you look at the markets that NFTs have entered today, you know, it's art, it's collectibles, it's games, et cetera. These markets, the reason that NFTs enter these markets first is that these markets are unregulated. And, and, and because of that, innovation can enter very quickly and kind of thrive versus, you know, where NFTs will enter in the future, which would be insurance, IP, the music industry. We're seeing some in- in- inroads in that now, but it's still very early days. Uh, it'll be all financial contracts. Like this will happen, it, but again, it, it'll take time. But going back to these, these original markets, these art and collectibles and gaming, these are, kind of fun, approachable markets that people already are involved with and people already understand. And so that's why, like people say, like NFTs are the Trojan horse to crypto mass adaption. It's because like people are already, you don't have to teach them new behaviors. It's not like, okay, there's a new DeFi protocol, there's new money, like Bitcoin. It's a very small leap to teach them, hey, you play video games, you can now earn money. Hey, you like art, you can now, you know, collect it totally digitally, right? So, so I think that's super, super important to, to getting the masses on board and getting them kind of red pilled into understanding crypto on it, on a deeper level. And then also if you, if you look at like those, again, these, these markets, which are uh, fun and friendly, there are huge markets like collectibles over a hundred billion dollars a year. Art is like, John would know more, but like $65 billion a year, maybe per year, uh, gaming, a gaming couple hundred billion dollars a year. So these markets are absolutely massive and NFTs are actually increasing the size or going to increase the size. Cause what they're doing is they're increasing accessibility and just lowering frictions. And that's, that's what like blockchain does broadly, just lower frictions down and, and really turn like every market, uh, enabling all markets to operate essentially at like the speed of light comparative to uh, how markets operate today.
3: Yeah. M- Andrew, maybe, maybe um, I want to go back to something that when you were starting your fund, I mean, you, you both have a vision of how big NFTs could be. Um, I think the challenge when you're thinking about what to build or invest in crypto sometimes is there's a high opportunity cost, right? There was DeFi at the time, there's investing in other layer ones, but you guys made... The early adopters and and believing in this thesis of nfts I am curious um what your initial predictions were back then uh, and and what did you get wrong along the way like what surprised you or what has surprised you over t- over you know the span of a year or two and, and as you look forward kind of what are the things that you know because I think sometimes crypto narratives evolve very quickly uh, maybe perhaps faster than you think but I am curious how you think about uh if you look back at what you thought how big this could and how quickly it could evolve and what did you get wrong
1: oh man got a whole bunch wrong for sure uh ton of ton of uh, learning along the way um okay so when we launched in September uh 2019 our objective was to operate for roughly you know 9 months to tw- 9 to 12 months and then build up that internal track record and then go out and and kind of speak to LPs or hopeful LPs and when we did we were trying to talk to people in summer of 2020 and these are like big crypto guys, right? These are people that have been in crypto for years. And I thought they would be, oh my gosh, of course, like this makes immediate sense. I I, I want to be involved, right? It was not like that at all, right? It, it was it was a huge grind. People were, you know, I had people straight up say this is the stupidest thing like I've ever heard. They're like, wait a second, you're launching a fund that's gonna buy crypto kitties? And I was like, Well, not exactly crypto kitties, but like kind of like crypto kitties. And so so that was a really tough pitch. It wasn't until the, the DeFi hype faded in in uh uh, fall of 2020, it was really September, 2020. That's when everything that's like a a a switch was flicked and everyone suddenly wanted to talk to me, which was like crazy because I've, I felt like, a you know, the ugly stepchild for, for like a a while. And then everyone wanted to learn about NFTs because, because the DeFi gains that were were being had were kind of diminishing. And then September, 2020, that's when it flicked and, and everything kind of changed. But so, uh, what did I learn along the way? Um, 20, 2021, I had no idea that NFTs were going to take off this soon in the way that they did. I thought, honestly, it would take longer. And I thought it would be more of a gradual increase versus just kind of this parabolic uh, adoption. And then even though, like, in reality, there's, what, only, like, five, four million users total, maybe, like, probably less than that. So it's still, you know, it seems parabolic because we were, you know, back, back when John was involved, I mean, John's super OG, so he knows this way more than me. But I remember going on Discord, it's like, every Discord there was, and just, like, knowing most people. Like you would just kind of know people. There's like 20,000 people, 30,000 people in the whole NFT community. And, uh, and yeah, so I got wrong the, the adoption, I got wrong people's, um, I thought people would be very open, especially crypto people, crypto OGs to NFTs. Uh, that was incorrect. It really took the, the, the zeitgeist or the narrative shift in order for people to really, uh, be attracted to that. And also I got art wrong. Like I, I, I remember talking to John and, uh, it was, I think late summer of 2020 and, and talking about super rare. And I was thinking, oh, because I, I, I don't know anything about art. I got into art because of NFTs. I, I never was into physical art. And John was telling me all about Super Rare. And I was just like, dude, I don't even know. Like, why do people want art, right? And so uh, I got that wrong. People love NFT art and, and will continue to do so in a major, major way. Gaming, I, I was not sure that gaming was going to be big. My air, my area of focus and originally was virtual worlds. My, my thought process was, oh, Metaverse, that means virtual worlds, right? And so it was a very narrow focus. But what I didn't realize is that no, this is all kind of building towards a metaverse. And really what a metaverse means is that you just need ownership in, in, in the digital world. That, that's like the, that, that is like the base, uh, requirements, but, but in terms of like, okay, virtual world, you have to character running around and you're buying and selling goods or whatever. Sure. That's like part of the metaverse, but that is not the metaverse, like how my narrow focus was originally.
2: Yeah. I experienced basically the same thing and that, like, I thought, a lot of people were going to like get it right away and be like, Oh yeah, this is cool. Like crypto kitties were cool. Like, you know, I think everyone thought they were cool. And I was like, yeah, it's going to be hard. Like everyone's going to get it. It'll be super cool. And talk to a lot of people who were just like, I don't know, man, like you should probably like pivot. And like, have you thought about like, you know, NFTs for insurance? And I was like, you know, you're just kind of like sitting around like nobody gets it. Like, am I just crazy? Like, I- <laughs> um, so yeah, it was a, Pretty incredible how fast it it, it flipped. Um, it also very surprised you. It was like, yeah,
0: yeah. I, I, I feel like uh, cheese wizards. Cheese wizards were not the best for uh, the NFT branding. No, it me. did Don't not help me.
2: me uh, <laughs>
3: yeah, I, I am curious. Uh, what what did you guys think really sparked the detonated this parabolic rise in interest? In and if it was a COVID, was it people just sitting around at home and? know, have nothing else to do, and and, and they they gravitate towards the digital world. And uh, what was different in in last year, where you really started to see Axie take off and and OpenSea volume take off? And why didn't, why didn't it happen earlier?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it was a bunch of different things. Like COVID definitely played a part in it, right? We're just like sitting around a lot more. Um, and I think what really catalyzed was like COVID kind of helped people see that nfts was a lot more than just you know crypto kitties. it was like you know people like andrew had like been around for a long time you know like these are real communities right that's like you know people it's like sort of absurd in web3 to talk about it's like community everything but it's true right like there were people humans all around the world you know it wasn't a scam they're like entering like interesting arts being created, new game mechanics are being developed. So like a lot of building had been happening and I feel like people just kind of were like, oh, CryptoKitties wasn't a thing, like NFTs aren't a thing and like no one was paying attention. And then people kind of like started peeling back the layers and were like, oh my God, like there's actually, you know, innovate, like interesting stuff is happening here. And so I think there was just like a lot for people to sink their teeth into. And so that was kind of like, you know, What kind of kicked
0: it off? Empire is proud to be supported by Avalanche. There is a layer one war heating up in crypto and Avalanche is at the center of it. Avalanche is one of the fastest smart contract platforms in the industry. I've been looking into the ecosystem recently and am honestly amazed by how fast it's growing. Here are three reasons why I'm so intrigued by Avalanche. Number one, Curve and Aave, two of the biggest DeFi protocols are in testing right now for avalanche integrations number two new projects these are not just nft clones amm knockoffs and lending protocols these are new projects nft projects play to earn games really really interesting stuff happening in the avalanche ecosystem and number three binance just re-enabled c-chain integration what in the world does this mean this means that you the user can directly withdraw to your metamask which previously was a pretty big user bottleneck. Thank you, Avalanche for sponsoring Empire. We are going to continue to explore Avalanche in future episodes. Hope you enjoy it. I would recommend that you do the same. Empire is proud to be supported by Paraswap. Paraswap is one of the leading DEX aggregators in crypto. Let's say you're booking a flight you would never go directly to an airline right you'd never go directly to united or delta you'd obviously go to google flights or expedia or kayak or booking.com That's what Paraswap does for DeFi. Paraswap, if you're watching on YouTube right now, you can see the platform. Paraswap makes swapping easier. It makes it faster. It makes it cheaper by aggregating more than 80 different DEXs. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, Uniswap, Sushi, Balancer, uh, Bancor, into one single interface. You can use Paraswap on ETH. Polygon, as you can see here, BSC. They recently launched Avalanche a few weeks ago. Pretty exciting if you are a trader listening to this you are losing money by not using paraswap and excitingly enough if you're a company or a platform looking to access the swapping or the yield capabilities of dexes you can now use paraswaps apis to integrate into your platform to get the full power of the dex aggregator into your platform so head on over to paraswap.io again if you're watching on youtube you can see how simple it is to use just plug in let's say i want to swap you know, 0.2 ETH. For USDT, you can see how simple it is. Just plug that in right there, and it aggregates over 80 different DEXs. So head on over to paraswap, dot io to use the platform today. All right, let's get back to the show.
1: Yeah, and then to echo what, what John's saying, I think that the, the crypto community was primed in September to think, okay, NFTs are a thing, because before it was just absolutely not e- even like an option, like not even a, a viable market. And then after they were primed, they started to dive a little bit deeper, And then come what, it was like late December, uh, this is 2020, early January of 2021. I think what really happened was, yeah, COVID obviously had a big impact as people are kind of sitting at home, but it was high sales that attracted headlines and people started writing about that. And then also, uh, what was great was NBA Top Shot and Nifty Gateway. Those are two centralized solutions. I mean, no, not, not, they were at the time, not, you know, I know NBA Top Shot's like decentralizing with flow and whatnot, but anywho. Um, pe- like regular people, quote unquote, like non crypto natives could then enter the market very easily. They like could just sign up with a credit card and start buying and, and selling these things. And it was really fun. Like, I think that trading is, is attractive. Like, trying to flip stuff is attractive. And when you put a, a, you know, a digi- like a good there versus like a stock or like a number, it becomes much more attractive for most people. And NBA, that's a huge, uh, hugely attractive thing. Like most people, like that, like people love the NBA art. Uh, that's, that's obviously very, very attractive. And what those two platforms did is they served as this gateway for people to then go more crypto native, so to speak. So like you start with nifty gateway, but then you check out super rare and then you, you dive deep into super rare and you just get, get like totally immersed in this whole world. And John's right. I know, I know like the meme is like, oh, community, community. Like, um, but that, that's actually totally valid. Like, uh, most of my friends, which is weird that I've made, you know, the past couple of years has just been, just been through NFTs. And, and I think a lot of people that they, they really form these communities and groups and now you're kind of seeing them formalized like through DAOs and whatnot. But uh, I think that uh, that's a big aspect. So it's like you're trading, you're trying to make money. It's social, uh, it's fun, it's exciting, it's weird, you know. And and so I think all these, the, all it was a confluence of factors that really made it go, you know, big, big, you know, huge this year.
3: Absolutely. Just a quick follow up to that. I mean, I think we a lot of people are skeptical or, or are dismissive of crypto when you talk about price. Uh, but I think price is super important, as you said. You know, I think my question to you to you both is. What would have it been different or what happens in a bear market? What happens when a lot of these new mints um, are not as successful? People start losing money. Um, they try to sell their illiquid assets and they realize it's not easy to get out of these things. Like, what does that do to adoption? What does it do to the existing cohort of users that, you know, not all of them? I remember talking to Board Apes guys, like over 50% of people had never touched crypto before. Right. They just that have a Board Apes. And I think you saw that to some extent in, in NFT NYC. But I am curious, like, what does a bear market look like? for NFTs uh, and what does that do to your thesis of adoption and, and the excitement that exists from maybe the artist perspective, but also the user perspective?
2: I think we end up, I mean, I don't think it's super dissimilar kind of from like the ICO hangover period and that, you know, there's things without substance are going to go away and like, it's, you know, a lot of people will be sad. Um, but I think you, you end up with like more infrastructure building happening in those periods. Um, so I think it's, uh, you know, who knows when it's going to happen? I'm sure it will be painful, but I think, you know, two years down the line, right. There's going to be way more interesting, you know, again, with like super air and like art, but it's like the way to like show it off, like the display solutions that are getting built right now are super cool. Like I think it's going to be, you know, a ubiquitous like everybody's going to have some kind of like nft just like showcase frame in their house and so um yeah i'm sure it's painful but you'll end up it's you know it's like this like cycles you you have sort of like the the speculator or the people who are just there for the speculation leave people who are more interested like on a deeper level stick around um and uh people just keep keep on building
1: yeah. I mean, we were all there for 2018 and that was like the most depressing year uh, just because I felt in 2017, like, oh my gosh, now is finally the time. It's finally arrived. And like, we're going to hundred K, you know, it, it's just kind of like the whole. And then 2018 happens and like you go to work every day and you're just like depressed and you're like, oh my God, like just more bad news, more bad news. The price is not moving. And then e- it takes so long that even when good news happens, the price doesn't move. And you're like, Oh my God, like, you know, this is never going back up. Like it's all over. But I, I mean, you, you think those things that back in the back of your mind. Obviously you're, you're still very long-term bullish, but you're like, Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. So, um, what happened in 2017 was that people were able to realize, wait a second. We could just have a white paper or like, I mean, it started off as like technical papers and then it moved into like marketing papers and then like a, a one pager and you could, you know, launch an ICO and make money. And, it, you know, it originally it was like, okay, Gollum, like Gollum Network, which is like a great team, like well thought out. And then like, you know, like, like, you know th- that, that like did really well with their ICO. And then like BAT, I think BAT, basic attention token with Brave Browser, that was a big turning point in 2017 because they raised money. I tried to participate in, in that. And it was like, I think it sold out in like a second. And it was like 20 million or so. I forget what it was. But that made people go, oh, my gosh, like we could come up with an idea and, you know, raise money for it. And then that's when it took off. And we kind of saw the same, you know, same process happen. Like history, you know, kind of repeats itself, where people realize, wait a second, I don't need to make Crypto Kitties or, or Cheese Wizards or Super Rare. I can just kind of come up with a, you know, a cool PFP, uh, you know, that my brother, you know, just made the art for, and we can launch it and hopefully make, you know, millions of dollars. And so, which, which I think speculation, like as you point out, Santiago, is like speculation is like pretty, it's okay, it's normal, it's it's actually good brings a lot more attention, a lot more eyeballs, a lot more capital, a lot more talent. Mm-hmm. And so I think that these these speculative cycles are normal for new uh new markets and also new technologies. And so um yeah we had that and now it's kind of I think it's kind of fading now. I think um you know the PFP era is is slowly definitely you know dying down significantly. But also one interesting thing about NFTs is that the markets are the NFT markets are highly cyclical. So like summer of twenty twenty virtual land was all the rage right fall of twenty uh, twenty the zeitgeist was meta uh was play to earn and so, like, actually, had a huge boom. And then going into the the kind of the the, the winter and and w- uh, winter of twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, it was art, and like, the art, art had a big boom. And it was also collectibles with traditional IP. And then going into the summer, it was really about collectibles with metaverse native IP, right? So, mm-hmm. so it's like um, we're kind of exiting that era. There's going to be some new guys, new new narrative pop mm-hmm. up, and that could happen today, tomorrow, like who knows? Um, but it it just this constant ebb and flow cycle of, of like, okay, what's the hot thing? Uh, everyone to that narrative and, and you know, the, the other markets will get depressed for a while, but, um, but you know, it's it just kind of how, how these markets are because they're super young and, and really, really immature.
3: Yeah. I guess a real quick follow up here is a, a lot of times I do wonder, like, as an investor and you talk to your investors, you have a fun life of 10 years or so. Um, you touched on a few of the type of NFTs and, and plays that you do, and, you know, land and and PFPs and and, and perhaps infrastructure. um. But how do you how do you as an investor how do you wrap your head around investing in these sort of things, and how do you have a fair like assessment of value, uh, particularly if you're touching like more traditional kind of art, um, you know you mentioned you didn't come from the art world per se, but h- how do you think about these mental frameworks of investing in these different types of entities, and 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 how do you like construct a fund around that right, because ultimately you're gonna have to sell a lot of these things to return you know capital back to your investors, so what happens then.
1: Yeah. So, so we actually have two funds. Uh, fund one is a direct asset fund. So actually buying and selling NFTs and fund two is a venture fund and that's investing in NFT infrastructure. So that, that, you know, the venture funds kind of, that's you know, pretty straightforward. For the fund one uh, really, you know, as mentioned before, like there's many different sub markets within NFTs. And really what you have to do is you have to assess uh, bare bones fundamentals because we're like, okay, what actually matters here is it, what always matters over a long, long enough time period. Are fundamentals. So you look at the team, the product, the token economics, the community, the market, the data, the risks. And it doesn't matter if it's a PFP, doesn't matter if it's a gaming asset, doesn't matter if it's virtual land, art, et cetera. You assess every project in those fundamentals. And then if a project passes muster, you're like, okay, great, this is a fundamentally a sound project. You dive deeper and you say, okay, what's actually driving value within this submarket? So, like with gaming, what drives value is all about utility. So if my sword does 10 damage, your sword does 100 damage, your sword's going to be more valuable. Uh, for art, and this is controversial, but art is is artist reputation or brand. So if I make a Banksy, no one cares. If Banksy makes the exact same piece of art, it'll sell for like five million dollars, right? Um, and then if you move on to uh, collectibles, like, what, what drives value to the collectibles is really all about narrative or, or or the kind of the story. And so, you know, if you have a, you know, I'll use a physical kind of baseball card analogy, but I have the one of one Babe Ruth baseball card made in uh, 1901. You know, it's super old, it's in pristine condition. It was graded, uh, 9.5 out of 10 from the Beckett grading scale. And, um, you know, and there's a big community of baseball fans that no one love baseball. So you kind of port that same process over to CryptoPunks, which is okay. Crypto punks were considered the first set of T's on Ethereum. They're actually not, but they are considered that there's only 10,000 of them. They have different levels of rarity. Uh, now a lot of people know about CryptoPunks and know about, there's a big community of CryptoPunk people and so on and so forth. And then, um, and then yeah, for, for, uh, a virtual land. It's 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 funny. It's the same uh, value drivers as physical land. It's location, content, parameters. And so location: Are you in uh, Manhattan or are you in middle of Illinois on a farm? Uh, content: Your single family home or a skyscraper? Uh, the parameters is really like the zoning laws. So what is the height, width, length that you're allowed to build on this piece of land? And so you just take those, you know, the, the same value drivers and apply that to CryptoVoxels or sandbox or Samium space or Decentraland, et cetera. And uh, and we, we and, and and again, these are our Valuation metrics, or and, and like what we think drives value within these worlds, based off of our experience, we could be totally wrong, right? Like, like this is what we're doing, this is how we're doing it, um, and it seems to be working out so far. And then going back to the cyclicality of the markets, so we could be, and, and our strategy for Fund One, which is the direct asset fund, is really buy and hold. So do our homework, buy and hold, right? Um, because we're fundamentally, you know, long, you know, the 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 metaverse and kind of the, these these markets and, and and these assets. And so, but but you know, if there's if the current zeitgeist is that mark, you know, that submarket and your assets within that submarket are really increasing in value. We we will offload opportunistically within within that you know that uptrend, um, even though we're still long term bullish. And then when the when the market gets you know depressed again, uh, we'll we'll, we'll kind of reacquire a position there. So um, we're not traders by any means. It's really kind of a, a long term buy and hold, uh, based off of homework, essentially.
0: Uh, Andrew and John, you guys both talked about zeitgeist a bunch, like the narratives and the zeitgeist of the space and how that drives a lot of things. Um, obviously uh like p pfps like punks and things like that were a big driver of this bull market like punks and things like that now you're seeing the floor of punks actually start to go down a little bit um which is which is pretty interesting to see and you're like john was mentioning like you're seeing kind of the narrative change to like uh, or maybe Andrew mentioned this, like IP, and like obviously Nike uh, acquired the the Creator Studio uh, studio yesterday, and uh, Adidas is getting into uh, NFTs with their cool little commercial with G Money, which was pretty cool to see. It feels like right now NFTs impact. Uh, actually, Andrew, you had this you had this fun tweet the other day. It was like right now NFTs impact collectibles, gaming, and art. Right. And we can see that. Collectibles, you've got like PFPs and trading cards and digital fashion, gaming assets. You mentioned Axis and Zedrun, Virtual Land, you've got like Sandbox and Decentraland and things like that. You then mentioned how do how do NFTs impact property, insurance, finance? And then that's when it kind of gets big. And so when I see a tweet like that, like the 2017 person in me is like. This is banking on the blockchain. This is like corporate blockchain, enterprise blockchain, like NFTs for insurance, like blah blah blah. The other side of me is like, oh, okay, maybe I should listen to these guys, John and Andrew. They've been right every single time. Uh, all value in the world will eventually move on chain. It'll probably be in the form of NFTs. What convince me why like the the latter is right? Like why is and maybe John, I don't know if you agree with Andrew. Like NFTs eventually take over property and insurance and finance and things like that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's like just generally distributed ledgers, right? We have these append-only uh, central repositories for, you know, societal information. Uh, so it's super valuable for money, right? Like Bitcoin was like, holy shit, you could do this in actually you know, decentralized fashion. And there's just so many other areas where there's no, like, the information is still horrible, right? It's like, you know, if you think about, like... Um, you know, for example, I think real estate in the United States is a pretty close example where there's like, there's a functioning, you know, registry of information that's public. So you have like Redfin, Zillow, they're showing you the exact same information, uh, but it it looks a little different. Where if you go like globally, real estate markets, like it's not at all like that. And so I think... If you just think about like oh having a central repository, it's append only. You know, there's rules and permissioning for who can update. You know, different uh, bits of information that applies to you know. It's like think about just like essentially all types of IP, where whether it's like you know stock photography or like licensing for somebody's you know a character's likeness or uh, your car title or so. You know, like I think there's just so many areas where having an easily accessible central repository for a certain type of information would be, you know, it's hard to measure the efficiencies you'd re- you that would be like, uh, given to society if you had something like this, right? It's like, how often it's like, Oh, got to, where's that bit of information? It's over here. And you're like connecting the dots instead of just like, uh, here's all the, you know, here's all the car titles here's all the property titles. Like it's super easy to go through. It's easy to run metrics on. Um, I think, yeah, there's just no way that it, you know,
0: it doesn't happen. So you're, you're essentially talking about, it's like, it, it's almost like abstract, or get the word NFTs out of there, get the word crypto out of there. It's like, let's just talk about using the same database and like the, basically the base layer of data should be the same. And And you can apply that to gaming as well. Right. You have halo, uh, for the, like, I don't know you have halo and call of duty right now. They're built on two different databases. If they're basically built on the exact same data layer, there's obviously all these efficiencies that happen between games, right? Like I was a big halo player. You can go pick up the different skulls and improve your, like, uh, your gear and shit like that. And then you could eventually, maybe you could move the gear over from halo into call of duty if they're built on the same data layer and you're, and when you apply this to finance, you're saying if you apply it to real estate and insurance, uh, in financial markets, if it's all running on the exact same data, data layer, you have those same efficiencies. Is that, am I getting the narrative and the thesis right a little bit? I think so. Okay.
1: John's absolutely like correct. If you just, if, you know, if you use a uh, open database uh, that people, you know, can't really go in and change, that there's just massive efficiency gains you get from, from that. And it goes from like, you know, in the IP world, the property the property title world, and kind of these financial contracts, that's something that we need to have. Like we need more transparency. We need more um, kind of, uh, I guess, security there. And then with the NFT world currently, uh, those are it's like kind of nice to have. Like gamers are still gaming without NFTs. You can still have art without NFTs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the fact that like if we're already living a lot of our life uh, digitally, meaning that we're spending a lot of our time on our TVs, our phones, computers, and whatnot, then it makes sense that if, if we're going to buy digital goods, it makes sense that we truly own them. Like, so, so you can go on Fortnite right now and buy skins and whatnot, and, and you don't actually truly own them. But, you know, it's kind of like, I, I liken it to like, you know, a communist system versus a capitalistic system where like, sure, you could like move to Soviet Russia and like try to start a life there and like try to acquire wealth and whatnot. But like, it's not really going to work. You're not really allowed to like own anything and, and do that. And you see like most people in Soviet Russia, they're trying to jump over the Berlin wall, and like enter the capitalistic, you know, West. Right. And so I just, I just see the same process now. It's like, well... Um, for those heavy-duty use cases that that we mentioned before, IP, uh, property titles, etc., blockchain is like needed. But for the NFT ecosystem, it's like it's not needed. Like you could live in this communist world, like we have been doing it. But now that we know that, oh my gosh, there is a Berlin Wall and you can jump over it. Like the guards are gone. And like that, that to me is crazy. It's like oh my gosh, everyone. And now like gamers hate NFTs and a lot of art people hate NFTs and blah blah. blah. Like we're still super early. Like most people didn't know about NFTs twelve months ago. But like slowly, people are gonna see. Oh my gosh! We can go to this world. We can, you know, generate wealth. We can, you know, make friends. We can, we can do all these kind of things uh, that that wasn't really necessarily uh, available to us before due to this technology.
0: Andrew, did you just compare uh, web, web two and platforming to uh, communist Russia? Hundred percent, hundred percent.
1: Quote of the episode. The, the,
3: yeah. uh, I, I guess Facebook uh, that makes Facebook the the, the Soviet Union. I am um, yeah. curious. Um, you talk about IP. There there has been this recent controversy around Punks Larva Labs owning the IP for Punks. and 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 there was a very um big punk collector i think it was 4156 that decided to offload a lot of his punk collection so i I think it's just topical to understand like from an artist perspective from a project perspective how do you what is this like ip battle like versus creative commons and allowing you know the community to build on top of that and how do you how much of an issue do you think that is And, and how do you think that gets resolved like what is the does the future of nfts look like is everything just going to move to creative commons and and you know let people build on top of that or are or, or what does ip mean for an artist for a company like you know um i am curious to get your your takes there
2: yeah it's really interesting we it was actually super hard when we first launched uh we had a horrible terms of service that like you know it was like me and my co-founder jonathan had like written together so it was you know, terrible and then we went out and tried to find you know, legal counsel to help, you know, we're like, okay, it's been a couple months, like, this is awful, we need to fix it. And getting people to understand what was being purchased and how it worked was like, banging your head on a brick wall. It was like, so we were like trying to find counsel for the longest time. Um, And eventually, uh, we found a lawyer who's now he's on our team, uh, his name's Emilio. And he like, understood IP and understood how blockchains work. And he's like, oh yeah, I can help you write this. And so it's like, I think we have an extremely simple, straightforward terms of service that explains like how it works. And I think, you know, debating should it be open or should it be closed, I think is, you know, it's like a more philosophical question. But I think what will eventually happen is we'll kind of like coalesce around almost like very simple building blocks. So it's super easy to understand like what are the rights immediately like it's just gonna be sort of like attributes that you could see, you know, this is like a collectible license. Um, It's like, so I think you end up with almost like, you know, the like the money Legos for DeFi, it'll be like IP Legos where you can kind of like plug and play. Yeah, some are mutually exclusive, obviously, but you can like, build sort of like an IP licensing profile for any asset, like immediately and understand like, how it works. Um, so I think right now we're seeing, you know, people with different opinions about like, sort of like how should, um, you know, creatives be like remunerated for like the things they're making. I think you know, that's up to them, right? It's like, if people want to keep their IP, they should, uh, if you want to build an open system, um, I, th- you know, I think there's a lot of reasons why that's a great idea. Uh, but it, you know, it's ultimately, it should be. There should just be optionality, and it should be really simple. Whereas, like, right now, all of this is in super dense legalese. No one actually knows what the fuck they're buying. Um, And so we're seeing people, like, all of a sudden wake up and be like, oh, I thought this was different. Like, it's not what I thought it was. So that's, I'm offended now. Um, And I think uh, we'll get to a place where it's going to be super exciting. It'll be very easy to see. You'll see people sort of, like, aggregate to what, you know, what aligns with their personal philosophies around it.
0: John, when you think about like, um, when you think about Lego blocks, like the first thing that comes to, to mind for me is DeFi actually. So you take like a um, uh, like a trading protocol and you mash it together with a lending protocol and, and you get some cool DeFi stuff. Uh, this concept of IP Lego blocks is really interesting and I see how it happens. But like, what does that actually unlock? And like, what does, what does that enable? And like, what does the world look like or the media space look like or the art world look like? with these IP Lego blocks that doesn't currently exist today in the same way that with DeFi, like when you put these Lego blocks together, you can get things like compound and Aave and balancer and stuff like that. Yeah. I
2: think, I mean, the first thing, even like with, you know, super rare is like, we had this very simple, like royalties, Lego block that's built in to the marketplace layer, but it was like, you were like, Oh, let's try it. And like, it worked really well. I think we'll start to see, you know, people building out these systems where you do have really interesting kind of like real time payments for creators, right, like where you don't even have to actually know what's being done on the other end, like someone's building, you know, a castle with Legos, and like somehow, some NFT that you created is tied in there, and you're getting like value accrual back to yourself as the original creator, I think we'll see like, again, you sort like, so like the web too, like if you think about like Spotify, how horrible it is for people to get, you know, payments for like royalties, I think we'll see a way more interesting kind of like streaming real-time payments. Um, and I think what's interesting too, is like it, the whole system doesn't necessarily have to be permissionless. Like I think it'll be a blended sort of legal, like old world legal with like, sort of like Ethereum style, smart contract infrastructure. And like, most people do want to obey the law. Like if you have, if it's really easy for me to send you a royalty payment for the sock photo I used or whatever, like I probably will. I want my books to be, you know, legally in order. And so I think we're just gonna see a sort of like increased velocity of this type of commerce happening. And I think that sort of like benefits everybody involved.
0: You guys are, you guys are, keep talking about like bringing value, like more basically stacking value on top of NFTs. Like you're stacking ip you're stacking maybe the ability to earn yield from your from your nfts does this decrease the does this decrease the value of just the pfps that basically don't have functionality like does basically stacking value on all of these nfts over here decrease the uh the value of the non-functional nfts
2: well i think pfps do sort of like the value in the pfp is that you get to you know you show have it, it as you <laughs> you get to yeah. show it off Um, But I do think we'll see, like, because it's such an early market, like, are many PFP projects overvalued? Like, I would imagine so. It's like low barrier to entry. I think there's just going to be more and more of these created. So, you know, justifying, uh, you know, $100,000 for a profile picture, uh, you know, maybe has diminishing returns over time um so i, w- I wouldn't be super,
0: more, yeah yeah it's almost more of like a question around like what is the moat of these things like you look at any business like santiago you probably saw a thousand crypto companies at parify like andrew and i'm sure all of you guys have seen a whole bunch of companies and then one of the first things you look at is like what is the moat of this company and when you look at nfts it's like the moat is usually community and community is important but it's not i i have trouble seeing that as like Mm. is the real moat of Mm. these things i don't know maybe i'm stuck in the old world but like what what is the moat of these nfts how do you think about that
1: yeah so okay so like broadly and we're talking about nft assets so broadly there's two buckets of nfts right now and like this will bifurcate into many different types in the future but there's functional and non-functional so non-functional it's like art and collectibles it's like what you see is what you get they don't really do anything uh you know art is meant to enjoy and view and Collectibles are meant to show off and, and kind of, you know, kind of socialize with with other collectors and whatnot. Functional is more on the uh, potential for future yield generation in some sense. So, like virtual land, you could rent out, you know, maybe generate some yield that, that in that way, or you can advertise, put up a billboard, and maybe uh, you know generate some yield that way. And with game gaming assets, it's okay. Your sword can kill x many, you know, this many monsters per hour. Therefore, they drop this many potions. And you sell those potions for Ethereum, so and so forth. So I think that, you know, there's just different, different, you know, different strokes for, 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 for di- different folks in the sense that like people want uh, different things. So it's like, some people are like, I only want NFTs with functionality. I only want, you know, to, to be able to generate yield from all these things. Other people are like, no, I only like art just cause it's, it's kind of, you know, my, my personal passion and uh, it, it really, it really varies. I don't think there's kind of a one size fits all. I do see people saying, Hey, uh, you know, very quickly. Um, we need to add more functionality to our PFPs because uh, like they don't really do anything, but our PFPs allow X, Y, Z or blah, blah, blah. And kind of touching upon the IP uh, going back a little bit, like a lot of people are saying, okay, like we're going to enable anyone to build uh, using our like new PFP product and they can, they have full commercial rights and whatever, Um, you know, and and in that sense, they're kind of like trying to add more functionality to it to make it more valuable. Um, But but like at the end of the day, like who's going to be incentivized to, um, you know, go to your project and then take your assets and make some new, uh, new game or new, new process off of that IP. It's like, unless they have huge bags, like they're probably not very incentivized. Like it's kind of like how we saw with loot, which I, that is a really, really sweet idea, but in terms of like everyone saying, oh yeah, we're going to build all this incredible stuff on it. Um, you know, I haven't really, really seen too much, like major built on it, uh, just because it's like, well, who's incentivized to do so it's much more cost effective for yourself and and, and time effective to go make your own project and just make it, like a better loot or, or whatnot. And then, and then really quick to touch upon the IP, like, I don't see how, uh, yeah, there's been a whole bunch of chatter, chatter on Twitter, how people are like, wait a second, we don't have full rights to this. Like this is bullshit, whatever. Um, I, I think that that, that's totally like fine and you can have that opinion, but like you just, just take that in your calculus when you're, when you're buying the asset, like, uh, if I buy a pair of Nike sneakers, you know, sure. I truly own these Nike sneakers, like they're mine and no one can take them from me, but like, I can't go make Nike clothing and like, I can't go like, like that's normal. And so why do people think that, okay, I, I truly own this NFT, therefore like, why can I make a whole game or commercialize this NFT? It's just like, well, that's just how, I, I don't really know. It's how, how the world kind of works. So, um, I think that, yeah, again, it just goes like different people are in different things it really depends on, on what, what you're kind of targeting.
2: Also like commercial rights in and of themselves are not valuable. Like the right to commercialize something like it's only valuable if the thing you want to commercialize is interesting to begin with. Um, so it's like, you know, if you have a shitty project to start, giving out commercial rights with it uh, won't magically add value to
3: it yeah you actually touched on something that i want to ask you both which is i i like to think that you know we think about nfts as the ability to you know crypto as a whole allows you to have digital scarcity um nfts capture sort of this goodwill this this idea of differentiating of your digital identity it's super powerful this idea of Before, you could have just taken a picture and there was no ability to register in an immutable ledger that proves provenance and that's super powerful. But my question to you both is, how much do you think that NFT value is because of scarcity? Or should we be thinking about the future of NFTs in a mindset of abundance, meaning these virtual worlds are abundant, like gaming, like, you know, should we have scarce land? Should we have fixed finite amount of NFTs or is the real value just this? that everything, as you guys say, will be expressed as an NFT and, and really unshackle this sort of idea that like value comes from scarcity, not so much utility and abundance.
1: That's, that's a really good question. It's it's super, yeah, it, it's, it depends, it, it, you know, to answer your question, it depends because there's so many different submarkets. And so for some people they, they want, you know, it really, it, it really depends on the asset that, that it, it's scarce for others. It, it does not, if you look at like a virtual land, most virtual worlds today, they have fixed land supply that leads to a lot of like, you know, San Francisco type problems where like it, it, the the baseline cost for a simple piece of land is like thousands of dollars. Then you have Nifty Islands, which is coming out, uh, which, you know, they, they introduce a unlimited land supply. So right when you join, you automatically get a piece of land. And so I think, I think, and like, not to say one's better versus the other. So like I go to Tokyo to get Tokyo culture and Tokyo vibes. I go to Paris for, for those vibes. I go to Chicago for, for those vibes. Right. right. So Like that's how it's going to be inside, you know, the metaverse where like it's, you, you go to different areas. And when I say go, I mean like you visit different websites and whatnot and and interact with different communities, but you go to these different areas for different reasons. So it's like, uh, Hey, I want to maximize my yield. Oh, I want to join this great community. Oh, I want to collect this one of one art. So it it really depends on what your objectives are.
2: Yeah. I think like, again, it's kind of like the IP rights where like scarcity can add value, but it's not the only value driver. Um, you know, the early X copies are awesome because you can't go back in time and, you know, make two on the same day. Right. So there's like the age part's really interesting, especially um, with art in that context. Um, So, yeah, I think it's, it's relative to the whole ecosystem. Like it can, uh, but it's not the only thing that like, you know, I don't necessarily think new pieces of art from an artist diminish the supply, like, I mean, maybe if you were just looking at the numbers, but like also, what is it like, is that piece of art scarce in another way? Like, you know, there's, there's like a lot of different layers. Yeah.
3: Not to put you on the spot, but you know, the company is super rare, implies rarity and scarcity, but no, I agree with you guys. It's sort of, it's there's, there's so many different use cases that, um, some will be scarce, some will not, and utility will be applicable to some and not others. I know we have you, uh, for a few minutes. We'd like to move on to just fire around questions before we go. Um, uh, the first one to both is which NFT, one, if you have to pick one that you can only keep, which one and why?
2: I would keep, uh, my X copy just because he was sort of like this artist who I loved, who, uh, I couldn't really collect his art before. And then with NFTs, it was this like massive unlock. So shout out to X copy.
1: I would keep my CryptoVoxel's Andrew name tag. Because Crypto is the project that got me really deeply involved in, in the NFT ecosystem, and then getting my my name Andrew was really kind of important to me. Even though back at the time there's like a hundred people, so like I was easily going to get it because there are no other Andrews. But but yeah, it, it, I would say that.
3: Second question: um, what are you, what do you th- what are you most excited that you want to see built but hasn't been built, in NFT world
2: or metaverse? I want really good. I think. Soon we'll have good display solutions, like really cool NFT frames. Uh, But we're, we're not quite there yet. So the moment I can seamlessly show off my huge collection, it's gonna be awesome.
1: Yeah, I would say, um, some method for regular people, like non-crypto natives to interact with NFTs in non-centralized ways. So like, um, I want it to be fully decentralized and have that true ownership but I want the experience, the wallet experience to be really simple. Not have to like go sign up for Coinbase and go do this and go to that and blah, 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 and seed phrase. Just like, I want a simple, simple process that regular people can sign up, have true ownership and, and really get involved.
3: Question for John, it's what would be your best advice for an artist? And Andrew, what would be your best advice for a collector in your years of absorbing this world and perhaps being one of the premier experts in the space?
2: Yeah, for the artist, I would say, um, and Koldy famously tells a lot of people there, you know, he used to preach the gospel the discord, but like, you should be making art for the sake of making the art. Like, if you're like, come into the space with that mindset, like, don't worry about how many pieces you're selling, like, just make cool art, make friends and actually join the community. I think you'll have, you'll just naturally have success. Whereas like, if you come into it, like thinking about like, gotta keep my price up and it's like, you're just thinking about financial gains, um, it'll be much more challenging to succeed. So, uh, just make art think and think about the the sales secondary.
1: Yeah. So a collector is different than an investor. So a collector, it's simple, just like love the art, like just love what you're collecting. It's as simple as that as an investor, if you're trying to target uh, ROI on a piece of art. Really, you want to look at the the artist track record and see how consistent they are, and see how well they market themselves, and really look at the the, the growth of their socials, and kind of dive into more of like the, the data side, and then interact with them, uh, you know, one on one to to kind of see how how they how they are. It's just a, a, as a person because you don't want to start you know really diving deep and making a position with some artist if they are a, a terrible person, obviously.
0: Andrew, this was awesome. Uh, if folks want to reach Andrew, he's at andrew steinwald on twitter uh john really appreciate the time as well at i think super rare john on twitter uh and also That's super go buy some artwork so guys thank you so much santiago as always thank you for co-hosting andrew john have a great rest of the day guys
2: jen yeah, it's always a pleasure see you guys thanks for everything
0: thanks guys see ya thanks so much